Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Good to be together, to worship together, to open God's Word together this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are going through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we have come to chapter 3. If you want to turn there, John chapter 3. And we've come to John 3.16 this morning. And we're just doing one verse, so if you're visiting, don't worry. Going through John doesn't mean we do just one verse every week, but this is an important verse, a verse that I want to take a little time on and uh, help us to understand it in its context and understand it in its um, meaning to what the conversation has been up until now with Nicodemus, how it fits into that conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, everyone's familiar with John 3.16. I think it's probably the most popular verse. Probably when you became a Christian, it may have been one of the first verses you were exposed to or memorized. Uh, even unbelievers are familiar with John 3.16. If not in, ter- in terms of what the content is, they're in terms of the reference because you see it on placards and billboards, uh, sporting events, and things like that. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it's familiar, and the problem with familiarity is that can breed a sort of insensitivity as to what it is saying and what it means. And you just kind of breeze by it and don't think about it with any kind of depth. I want to do that a little bit with us this morning, and we'll continue probably into next week as well. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the miniature gospel. You can see that, the miniature gospel. Uh, it's, uh, it's very clear in this verse. Um, and also he called it a, a verse where the whole Bible, basically, the message of the Bible is contained in this one passage, this one scripture. The context, as I said, has been uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You notice we met Nicodemus up in verse 1. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus by night, verse 2. Verse 3, Jesus gets right to the point. Here's the real question on your mind, Nicodemus. How can you know that you're going to go into the kingdom of God? How do you know that you are going to go to heaven? And Jesus basically gives him an explanation of that, turns his theological world upside down by telling him that you must be born again. It's not what you do. It's not how what you, all the works that you do. It's not being a Jew. Uh, those things will not get you into heaven. Those things are fine, but they are not what is the requirement for heaven. What is required is that you must be born again. You must be born from above. God must do something to you, is the point. God must do a work in you. The the Spirit must rebirth you. Uh, Nicodemus has trouble with that terminology. Uh, He says, how does that work? And Jesus explains that, that it's a work of the Holy Spirit uh, in his life and required in his life. It's a work of the Holy Spirit where the wind, uh, he calls it the wind in verse 8, the Spirit of God comes in and does that internal work. Regeneration is the term. Regeneration. It's just not some outward belief. It's not some outward actions that we, we participate in, but it's what has happened on the inside. 
And that is what Jesus has said to him. It's, it's about what God does to you. It's not what you do. And then we came to uh, Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? And he asked him this question, are you teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Verse 10 says, and then he goes on to say, now let me tell you what God has done for us. He says, you can't ascend to heaven. You see that in verse 13. But God came down, descended from heaven. The Son of Man has come into the world. That's the plan of God. The plan of God was to send his Son into the world. You see that in verse 13. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I, Nicodemus, I came from heaven. And then you see in verses 14 and 15, he's talking about a scene in, Numbers, in, in the book of Numbers. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I told you last week, that's a reference to Christ's death on the cross. The plan is that God would descend to earth. The purpose in his coming was to be lifted up to be put on a cross. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sin. And that's what he's telling Nicodemus. Um, so that, notice verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And so he says the purpose of God, or the plan of God, send his son. The, the, the plan was for the son to die. And then he gives in verse 16, our verse for this morning, our verse for this morning, he gives, let me get this straight here. <laughs> this morning, he gives, um, see the word for in verse 16? That means because. So for connects it to what we've just read. Because. He's saying the son must be lifted up, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life because. In other words, in this verse, John 3.16, we have the motive for verse 15. We have the motive of why the Son descended. We have the motive for why God did this. And we see that in verse 16. God, <coughs> excuse me, we, we see that it was the love of God, for God so loved the world. The motivation was his love. That's the motive behind the plan. And that's what this verse is about. We're talking this morning about the love of God. It was interesting in Sunday school listening to that talk this morning about John Owen and the love of God. We don't think about the love of God enough. The, the plan centers on God. God's love for us. Um, his character explains everything. His character explains theology. His character explains everything that he does. He responds, he works through all of his attributes, through his character. And that is the reason for what he has done. First John 4, 8. You don't have to turn to this, but listen to these Verses from 1 John 4, you're familiar with them. Listen to this. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 9. By this the love of God was shown to us, 
or shown in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the love of God. This is the motivation of God. He was motivated by love. 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us us you cannot understand christianity you can understand salvation you can understand your relationship in the body of christ if you do not understand the love of god let me tell you what it means the love of god a very concise definition of the love of god means that god seeks and god gives what is best that's a concise definition god seeks god initiates and god gives what is best seeking sacrificially what is best for those he loves understand that definition seeking sacrificially what is best for those he loves that is the central point of salvation <clears throat> agape love you've heard of that it's unconditional this is not like your love this is not the way you love you love, you love hoping to get something in return for your love. You love hoping to uh, feel something from the love that you extend to somebody. You love the object that is lovely. That is not God's love. Understand that. The word world is on here. Enemies are included in that. Understand that. When we talk about the love of God, we are talking about something you and I do not fully understand. It is foreign to our nature. I love because you do this or that in response to my love. You have not loved like God loves if you are sitting there waiting for some response and condition on your love. You are not. And that just, I need supernatural power in me to love like that, like this. This is not how we think. We cannot humanize God and impose our definition of love on Him and try to make him look like us and think about him the way we think of ourselves when we love. That is not how God does it. His love is his nature, his character. He's always seeking, and he's always seeking the best for those he loves. So it's interesting to think about it this way. Let's think about some Old Testament examples. Let's think about Abraham for a moment. Let's think about Abraham. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. <clears throat> he says in verse 6, For you... And he's talking about Abraham. Abraham's not mentioned here, except we'll see. He's talking about forefathers. But I want you to think about Abraham and the nation Israel just for a moment. He says in verse 6, this is a, a choosing, electing love where God takes the initiative. Abraham, Israel, they're not looking for God. They're not looking for God. God comes to them. Watch how this works. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you, verse 6 says, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. <clears throat> 
Verse 7, the Lord did not set his, notice this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Verse 7, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Forefather, one of those, main one, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. You remember in Genesis chapter 11 10 and 12, Abraham is called. There's no Israel. There's no nation Israel. Understand this. There is absolutely no nation Israel. God calls a man named Abraham who is 75 years old and his aged wife, they are beyond childbearing years. They're all but dead, Romans 4 says, in that area. And he calls them and says, you are going to be the father of a great nation. Well, how is that going to work? Two people, a very small nation at this point. Two people, Abraham and Sarah. But God set his love on Abraham. Oh, well, well, I know why God set his love on Abraham. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Abraham was a very influential man. Abraham was a man who was up there with Pharaoh and others. In fact, when Abraham goes to Egypt, Pharaoh was fine with Abraham being his, his brother-in-law, you know, because he thought Sarah was his sister and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, Abraham was worthy of the God's love. No, none of that, folks. He was an idol worshiper. Joshua says he and his family worshipped idols. They worshipped the moon god in Mesopotamia. God called an idol worshiper to start a nation through whom that man, he made a covenant with that man and that family that all the nations on the earth would be blessed. You're sitting here this morning because God set his love on Abraham an unworthy idol worshiper, and all the things that go with idol worship. He was involved in all of that. He was not looking for God. He was not seeking God. He thought nothing about God. But God set his love on him. Understand that. There's nothing in Abraham. It's all about the love of God. It's all about the love of God. He was an idol worshiper, and God loved him. And guess what? He loved God because God loved him first. That's how it works, okay? God doesn't say, oh, I'm going to look for some people that love me. Well, he's not going to find any. He's not going to find any. God loves, and God takes the initiative, and God goes and sets his love on that one. God's intervening love. Let me show you another example in the nation Israel. Still in Deuteronomy, verse 7, look at that again. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. There was nothing about you that God made, that made God choose you as the nation through whom the Messiah would come and all the nations would be blessed. Nothing about you that made you the covenant nation through Abraham, that came through Abraham and made you anything special. You, you know the tragic history of the Old Testament. What did the Jews do? They continually, they continually 
rebelled against God. They went into idol worship. They were unmerited and they were undeserved. I'm just trying to emphasize to you, when we talk love of God, there's not, don't put human love on God. It's in God, totally. It's expression of His character, who He is. He loves. He loves like that. They were stiff-necked and unmerited and undeserving, and they weren't looking for Him. And then there's you and me, right? Talk about God's intervening love to an unworthy object. There's you and me. You know that. No Christian is any more worthy of God's transforming love than you could say Abraham and Israel. They did this, they did that. Well, I do too. You know, I'm not any more worthy than they are they were i don't usually do this in a morning service i debated on it but i want to show you a video clip cj mahaney gives his testimony in this video clip i want you to listen to it it's a i was going to read it to you from uh his book cross-centered life but i just want you to read it because i think it's you can't relate to his problem and his sin Maybe, but you can relate to God's intervening love. Let's play that, guys. I grew up in a nominally Catholic home. I rebelled against Catholicism at a very early age, also at an unusually early age for the time, and primarily through the influence of older friends, although they are not responsible. I am entirely responsible. I was introduced into the drug culture, and once introduced... Uh, sadly, and to my shame, I pursued all that was offered there, all that was present there. I pursued it with a passion. For a period of years, on a daily basis, I was high. And what began with simple marijuana ended up progressing to all manner of hallucinogenics. And eventually, I was taking LSD on a daily basis as if it were vitamin C. The only thing I did not do was heroin. And the only reason I did not do heroin was because I was afraid of shots. And so as I would sit with some of my friends who did do heroin, I just couldn't imagine shooting up. I couldn't imagine giving myself a shot, and I certainly was not going to allow them to give me a shot, and that is all that restrained me from heroin. I had no interest in the gospel. I was ignorant of the gospel. I had no category for gospel. I had no category for church. I had, I had no theologically informed categories in my heart and in my mind, and Sadly, and to my shame, I was not only passionate about sin, I sought to recruit others to participate in sin with me. I sought to train others in the sins I was committing. I loved sin. I loved to sin. Had you encountered me in my pre-conversion state, you would have not encountered somebody who was contemplating issues of life and creation and meaning and future. I had a few friends like that. When we get high, they start asking questions about existence and meaning. And I made it very clear to them that that's not what this is about. That that wasn't helpful. That that didn't serve me as I was ascending on this trajectory of what 
whatever drug I had ingested that evening. And that if they were gonna continue with this kind of discussion, well then I was going to exit because I was there to party, I loved pleasure, and I did not want to contemplate any issues of meaning and life and future. And if you confronted me and said, you know what, the gospel will provide a joy that exceeds and transcends what you are experiencing. I don't think I would have had a category for that. I think I would have argued with you. I think I would have studied you to some degree and said, look, I'll match what I'm experiencing with your experience. If you just said you're unhappy or tried to convince me I was unhappy, I would have said to you, pal, you must not have spent very much time with me. I'm, I'm very happy. I'm enjoying all I am doing. I am deriving pleasure from everything I am involved in, all that the drug culture has provided for me. There, I, I lack restraint and I'm enjoying the lack of restraint. I do not fear authority. I love to sin, obviously didn't identify to sin, but I loved it. A friend of mine who had, in effect, participated in leading me into this world, relocated to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and a few weeks after he relocated, he somehow wandered into a Southern Baptist church where he heard the gospel. <laughs> he not only heard the gospel, he was regenerated. He then turned from his sins and trusted in the Savior, and then just a few weeks later, he returned to Maryland with one passion and purpose. He wanted to share the gospel, what he understood of the gospel, with all who were his friends. And by the grace of God, I was one of his friends. So one night, he asked to meet with me, and I assumed it was so that we could rejoin and party together. We met initially at my house. And as I sat down, I pulled out some hash, if my memory serves me, and I offered some to him. He declined. I was momentarily perplexed, but not deterred from participating myself. <laughs> and as I began to smoke, he began to share. Only been a Christian a few weeks. Didn't really know much. Oh, but he knew enough. And he communicated to me the gospel about Christ and him crucified, about a savior who died for my sins. And at some point, as he shared the gospel, in between tokes on that pipe, God acted upon me. Now, please understand, to my knowledge, this is the first time I ever heard the gospel. And the first time I ever heard the gospel, I experienced the miracle of regeneration. I turned from my sins. I trusted in the Savior for forgiveness of sins. And that evening, my life was dramatically transformed. He left me a King James Bible. I didn't understand a word I was reading in that Bible. Not word one. And yet, I couldn't stop reading this book. I was underlining passages. Had you been there and said, why did you underline that? I would have said, I don't know, but it... <laughs> I, would, I, would, I don't think I comprehended anything I read. I just had some awareness that within this book were the words of eternal life. My affections were altered. I no 
longer loved in the same way. I don't want you to think that there was the complete subsiding of sin in my life. There, there was not. He was the only Christian I knew. He then went back to Fort Lauderdale. I was left there by myself. I had no category for church. I'm just newly converted. I have new affection. I have new passion. And within a short time, I found my way to a meeting of primarily college students where we were singing like we were tonight. And I stood there singing, just thinking that just a short period before this, had I come into this gathering, I would have observed what was taking place and thought everybody present was insane. Why are they singing? Who are they singing to? Look at those words. They are strange. God, wrath, sin, savior. And yet, that evening, I found myself singing to this one who had saved me from the justified, righteous, and furious wrath of God against me and all of my sins. It may not be your experience, but you've experienced something similar. Because Ephesians 2 says this, we are all, we are all walking in darkness, living in darkness. We come into this world in rebellion against God. We all come to this world as children of wrath. For, verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We all, like the Israelites, like the Mesopotamian idol worshiper Abraham, like C.J. Mahaney, all of us have hearts that are rebellion to God. And God loved us. God, it tells us, made us alive together. God, because of his great love, Ephesians 2.4 says, with which he loved us. The world does not like this particular doctrine. The doctrine that says man is sinful from the heart. That man comes into the world a sinner. He sins because he's a sinner. Out of the heart proceed all kinds of evil. That is the nature of man, every man, every woman. The world does not like a doctrine that says we are all like that. The world, whenever there's a tragedy in the world, like a, a mass shooting or some other heinous crime that's absolutely horrible, the world looks at that and says, how did that happen? What would make a person do that? You and I look at that as believers and we say, but for the grace of God, I could have gone the same way. Because the seeds of those sins are in all of us. The seeds of those kinds of sins, though we may not commit them or we're not as evil and bad as we could be, because we've had other restraints in our life that may keep us from going in that direction, we know, we know that it's from the heart of man and his rebellion against God, his love for pleasure, his love for himself, his love for self-exaltation, we know that because of man's sinful heart, he's in rebellion against God and he carries out all of these kinds of evil things.
The world looks at that and tries to explain it other ways. We know what the Bible says about the nature of man. And yet, God said his love. God loved us when we were like that. That is a tremendous statement that's said in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for any of us to clean up our act. He did not wait for any of us to get into a mode of wanting to go to church and wanting to do things. He didn't wait for us to want to do anything. He did that work in us. Go back to John 3.16. If you're still there, just look at John 3.16 with me again. Let me say a few things about John 3.16. <coughs> We're talking about a God whose character is to love. It says God is the lover. Notice in verse 16, for God so loved. God the Father, primarily we're talking about here, but you can say that of all the members of the Trinity. They all share. This would be something that's shared by all three. Now here's what's interesting about the love of God. It really is incredible when you think about it this way. When you think about the hate of God, Think about that, the hate of God. That may not be what you were expecting me to say, but the hate of God. Think about that because that gives meaning to the love of God. When you think about it against the backdrop of God's hate, it gives more meaning to the word love. For example, turn to, or you can just jot these down, but Psalm 5.4 says this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate, that's the word, you hate all who do iniquity. That's Psalm 5, 4, and 5. Listen to Psalm 7, 11, and 12. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation. Hear that word? God has indignation. He is angry every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword he has bent his bow and made it ready. You see, God responds to sin. The wages of sin is death. He's got the bow ready. And then Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are dust beneath his feet. God's wrath, God's anger, God hates sin and those who commit it. That is the reality behind this statement, for God so loved. It gives balance, gives balance. Uh, Calvin said, in a divine way, he loved us even when he hated us. A, a, a parent of a child who has a rebellious child, he wants to punish the child's rebellion, and yet he loves the child at the same time. Think about that, that way. So you don't want to oversimplify this. Some people say, no, no, Rod, no, that's not true. If God, if God is a God who punishes, then he's not a God who loves. Some would say, if he hates and punishes, then he cannot be a God of love. 
If he's a God of wrath, he cannot be a God of love. You've heard those arguments. That is not true. These are parallel truths about God. These are attributes of his character. This is who God is. He is a God of wrath and judgment, and he's a God of love. And you don't understand his love if you do not understand his hate. You do not understand the depth of his love if you do not understand his hatred for sin. God's love and God's wrath, they, they coexist. And, 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 and see what wrath does? Wrath highlights the need for salvation. Wrath highlights the need for salvation. The source of salvation is God's love. Wrath highlights why we need salvation. And so when, when Jesus hung on the cross, he did not hang on the cross and say, God, please be nice to these people. God, please love these people. Nobody had to twist God's arm to love. God is love. He's also God of wrath. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Uh, 1 John 4, 16, we, we, know, we, 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 we know we deserve justice, but his love has been dispensed. You've got to keep this in your mind when you think about it, when you think about it, because this is what makes his love different than yours and mine. How can you be a God of wrath and love me at the same time? How does that work? Well, it works in the mind of God. And it works beautifully, according to John 3.16. So you can't, understand, you can't understand Christianity if you don't understand that. You've got to understand the love of God. And don't try to make it look like human love. Notice he says, God loved the world. God loved the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This has been a battleground verse, folks. If you haven't been involved in the battle, don't join it today. Just stay out of it. But it's been a battleground verse. A battleground verse for people. God so loved the world. Surely God doesn't love the unelect what some would say. God so loved the world. You have Arminians who believe in the free will of man, and they would come along and say, see, see John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world, and whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Those of the Arminian persuasion would say, this is their proof text for their viewpoint. They will discount all the other verses in the Bible that talk about election and predestination, but they will say, this verse proves that there is no such thing as election and predestination in the sense that the Calvinists use it, that God predetermined, pre elects, those for, elects people for salvation. The Calvinists use this verse too. And they say, oh no, 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 this verse, the word world is the key here. And so some Calvinists come along and say, the word world in this verse doesn't mean everybody. 
It just means the world of the elect. So you've got the battleground that goes on. Because God doesn't love the unelect. God does not love those who are not going to believe, who not, not, not going to believe in him. And so you have that debate. Listen, I strongly believe in election. I strongly believe in predestination. I strongly believe in those doctrines. I believe they are all over the Bible. I do not think that this verse, though, is a proof text for that viewpoint. I don't think the word world means the world of the elect. I think the world means the whole world. The world is cosmos. That's the word. Cosmos. Cosmos means the people of the world. You can't make that, this verse say anything except God loves the whole world and all the people of the world. That is what this verse is teaching. It's not the world of the elect. You don't see that anywhere. Used like that in, especially in the book of John. Now, God does hate the world system. Sometimes world is used like that. We're not to love the world. It's used like that sometimes. But that's not how it's used here. This is cosmos. This is talking about the inhabitants of the world. When the, world, when the Bible talks about human beings, I mean, you can look this up in a concordance, but it, <clears throat> we're, not, we're talking here about people who live and breathe on this planet. So it does trip some people up. Let me just give you some examples here because I don't believe it's talking about the world of the elect. Let me give you some examples. Go to John 7, verse 4. It's never talking about a smaller group. That's my point. It's not talking about a smaller group. 7-4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Go out there and let the world see you. Go out there and do what you do publicly, as Jesus is being told. That's how cosmos is used there. Notice in 12, 19, flip over to John 12, verse 19. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Um, they were saying to one another, <laughs> excuse me, the world has gone after him. The inhabitants of the world, the, the population, the people out there, not some small group. We're talking about the people out there. Gone after him. Not the small group of the elect. Some people have gone after him. The people are following him. The Pharisees did not like that. He was getting popular with the people. Go to John chapter 18. John 18, verse 20. He says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. I didn't do things in secret. I mean, they're going to arrest him here soon. He goes, I've always been out there in the public. People have seen me. So the whole world. I'm just telling you this morning how the word world is used. Cosmos is used in the book of John. It's inclusive. It's normal usage means 
the inhabitants of the world. Go to John 14. Go back to John 14. Let me show you a different light. Look at this in a different light here for a second. Once again, I'm trying to show you that world is not talking about a small group. Okay? 14.22. Judas, not Iscariot, not not the bad Judas, said to him, Lord... What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? You see that? Oh, you have disclosed yourself to us, us in this room, this small group. But what about the world? See how world is being used there? World is not being used about the small group in the room with Jesus right there. World is being used about everybody else out there. Just trying to show you, world is not talking about small group of the elect. Look at 17.6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. These men. These, these, I have chosen these guys. These are, these are elect, you could say. I have chosen these guys, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I brought them to me out of the world. They're not a small group of the world, you're the elect, but there's the world out there that they were taken from. They were men who were in the world and I brought them out of the world. Point is, the word world means all the inhabitants of the world. See in verse 9, excuse me, yeah, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Small group, those you have given me. But the world, the world, that's what's out there, the non-elect. So you get the idea. You can't try to make the word world in John 3.16 refer to the elect. That's the point, to give it some impossible meaning. That's not the correct way to interpret that. I've heard some do that. I think A.W. Pink said that in one of his commentaries or books on the attributes of God. He first introduced the idea that God loves the elect and not the rest of the world. I'll explain that in just a moment. But the point is, it's been taken way too far to say that God has no kind of love at all for the world. Let me explain that in just a second. But look at Luke, Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. See, here, here's my point. Did God choose before the foundation of the world? Yes, I believe absolutely he did. He did. And did Jesus say, whosoever will may come? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That's just two parallel truths that run through the Scripture. They're both true. I don't need to try and reconcile it or make some verse say something that it does not say. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Does God love the does God love sinful non-elect people? That's the question. Does God love sinful non-elect people? I know he loves the elect, we know that. He set his love on you. But does he love the non-elect? Look at 5:43 and 45 to 45. You have heard that it was said, Jesus is speaking, 
Sermon on the Mount, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you have been taught. You guys have been taught something that is wrong. That's what you've heard. Verse 44, I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his sun to shine, to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Wow, he says, you are going to follow God's example. When we love our enemies, when we love those who are the non-elect, when we, when we love them and those who persecute us, we, notice our saying, we're following God's example. We're loving those you would expect to hate. And God the Father is our example. We're to love our enemies. We show and have a love for our enemies. And God's our example. You want to be like your Father who is in heaven? And love your enemies. So it makes no sense to say that God does not love the world, even those who will never come to saving faith. You share the gospel with them, they are the mission field. Okay, now here's the question, and I don't want to, I don't, I've got three minutes, okay? So hang in there with me. But here's the question. Does God love the elect and the non-elect in the same way? If you're a Christian, you are the elect. He refers to you as the elect, the called out ones. If you're a Christian, does he love you the same way he loves the non-elect? And the answer to that question is no, he does not. It's not the same way. And that's understandable. If you were here and you were married, do you love your wife the same way you love all the other women in this room? You're in big trouble. <laughs> no, you don't. Do you love other people's kids more than your own? No. There is a different expression of that love, right? We have a different expression of that love when it's in a different relationship. Same way. It's, there are degrees here that we're talking about. There are degrees that we have. I, I don't love people in the body of Christ the way I love people who are outside the body of Christ. It's not the same. We don't share a common faith. We don't share a common purpose, a common love. But doesn't mean my love for my enemies or my love for my neighbors who are un non-Christians, is not a genuine love. I love. I can show acts of love to unbelievers, is the point. And that reflects God's example, even to those who are my enemies. And so in the church, we have a love for one another that's different than the love we have for those who are outside the church. And it's a genuine very, very genuine love for the ones who are outside the church. I hope that's helpful. I, I hope you understand that I, I believe that God chooses and God elects and God loves the elect. He has a special, different love for the elect that he has for the non-elect. That's all true. But John 3.16 is not a place where you go to change the wording around so it fits your theology. I just don't think that's necessary, and it's, it's not helpful to do that. And so, John 3.16, I'm going to have to close here, but let me just say this. 
Before you were a Christian, you were of the world. You were dominated by sin and darkness, and you deserved judgment. And that's when God loved you. Understand that. Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, God had to love me before the foundation of the world because he would have never loved me once I was born, started living. Think about that. That's right. He had to love me before the foundation of the world. But it just shows you something of his love. It's not based on me or anything worthy in me or you. That is not how we think. That is not how we think. So this is a a testimony, John 3.16, a testimony of his character. Testimony of his character. And then we'll come to the last phrase and see how that love was expressed. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know why he did it? Because he loves. Another reason he did it, because hell's real. Hell's real. The reality of hell. He did not want any, any to perish. We'll talk about that next week. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for these verses we've looked at, or (laughs) verses that support this verse and make things clear for us. I pray, God, that we would be encouraged as we think about the love of God and realize and remind ourselves once again that it is not my anything about me. It's about God and His character, that He would set His love on me and others in this room who know him. And it's because he has done that for us that we love him. We sing praises to his name. We exalt his name because he first sought us. We did not seek him. We thank you, Father, for this time this morning. We just thank you for the glorious truths that we have seen today. We thank you, Father, for the power of your gospel, the regenerating power of your spirit that opens our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel to see the the beauty of the cross, the payment for our sin in Christ. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.